When the accused man's lawyer approached him, the lawyer said, I've got some good news and some bad news for you. Well, his client replied, start with the bad news. The lawyer answered, he says, well, he says, man, your blood is all over the crime scene and the DNA proves that you did it. The client moaned, oh my, well, tell me, what's the good news? The lawyer smiled and said, well, your cholesterol is only 98. That is hilarious. You must not have got it. Ask somebody afterwards to explain it to you. I've been waiting all week to tell that joke. The point is, is that lawyers can be helpful people sometimes. In fact, I've always wanted to have a lawyer in my family. I would imagine that updating last will and testaments and contesting speeding tickets and navigating IRS audits and getting your money back from the used car dealer who sold you a lemon and springing your drunk uncle from jail and even closing on the sale of a home would be a lot easier with a good lawyer in your corner. A lawyer is a handy person to have around. Well, this past September, my dreams came true. My youngest son, Mac, married an attorney, and a very bright one at that. We now have a lawyer in the family. Of course, I'm hoping we don't need her services anytime soon, but if we do, we got one, Megan Adams Esquire. But in reality, I've had a lawyer in my family for a long time. Since the day I gave my life to Jesus and joined his family, I've had the world's best lawyer in mine. That's how John begins chapter 2. He tells us that we have an advocate or a lawyer practicing in God's court. Our big brother is also our lawyer. He represents the members of his family, everyone who has fellowship with him. And his name is Jesus Christ the righteous. As I said, a lawyer can be a handy person to have around. Chapter 2 begins, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. Now at the end of chapter 1, John reminded us that none of us are sinless. Twice John reiterated, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. We live in a sin-infected body. We live in a sin-infested world, which means we're vulnerable to the weaknesses of our flesh. Even as believers, we are still able to sin. But here's an equally vital truth. As believers, we're also able not to sin. In fact, this is why John says he's writing this letter, that you may not sin. 1 John is an encouragement and a catalyst for us to live above our frailties. Embedded in this letter is a description of the believer you don't often hear. A real Christian is a person who has fellowship with the Father and with His Son, Jesus. Our sins are forgiven. We walk in God's light. His love motivates us to love. We're born of God. We are the children of God. We have His nature in us. His Spirit lives in our hearts. His Word abides in us. We received eternal life. We have great power through prayer. 
With all these advantages, it's not unreasonable to expect that a Christian can live a life that overcomes sin. In fact, in chapter 1, verse 9, when John promises us, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, he's not giving us a kind of of get-out-of-jail-free card. A lot of people interpret it that way. So that now when we sin, we can just flash like a badge, 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, and pretend as if nothing ever happened. That's not why John writes. To the contrary, he hopes that by assuring us that Jesus is ready and willing to forgive us and cleanse us, it will endear us to him. It'll motivate us to want to be better, not hide our mediocrity behind flimsy excuses. Over the years, I played basketball for dozens of coaches. Some of them had a quick hook. Miss a shot, make a turnover, fumble a mistake, and they'd yank you from the game right then. I could never play for those coaches. I would tighten up. It's it's hard to play your best if your first mistake gets you benched. This is why John writes chapter 1, verse 9. You can't follow Jesus if you're worried that your first mistake will get you benched. John is giving us confidence by assuring us that forgiveness will never be denied to a repentant heart. As Christians, our failures can't defeat us. Our fellowship with God hinges on the work of Jesus, not our perfect performance. When we realize God's love, that's what changes us and makes us live to please Him. In 2013, the South Dakota State men's basketball team, they made it to the NCAA tournament. The Jackrabbits were a 16th seed, and they were scheduled to face the number one seeded mighty Michigan Wolverines in the opening round. Well, I'll go ahead and tell you they lost. But before the game, their coach, Scott Nagy, he gave a moving speech similar to what John is saying in these verses. Scott told his team, I want you to play like you're loved. Play freely. Love isn't dependent on your performance. No matter how you play, you are loved. Play with that in mind. And this is what John, in essence, is saying. You're less likely to sin if you live like you're loved. Do you live that way? Do you live like you're loved? And again, to bolster our confidence, John writes in verse 2, And if anyone sins, if you're worried about God's condemnation, you need to realize we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is our lawyer. The word translated advocate means attorney. Let me introduce you to Jesus Christ Esquire. He is our advocate in the court of God. As I said, a lawyer, a lawyer in the family is a good person to have around. I once heard it put, a good lawyer knows the law, a great lawyer knows the judge. And this is true of our Lord Jesus. He's God's son. He's got clout with the judge. Forgiveness and fellowship with God is not about how we roll or what we know. It's about who we know. Once I was in the checkout line at the grocery store when the lady in front of me, she realized that she had forgotten an item on her shopping list. She left her son, maybe 12 years old, there with the clerk while she went back into the store to get the item. 
that boy ended up standing there in the woman's place. And it was a tough job because folks in the line started getting impatient. And the clerk was obviously agitated. And people began to grumble. And if that boy had not been there, they would have checked the lady out without her. But the boy stood his ground. Despite the pressures of waiting and the failure of his mom, that boy saved her place. And this is what Jesus is doing for us right now in heaven. He's saving our place. He's interceding for us. We're back in the store somewhere while he's saving our place. Jesus is our advocate, even when others point to our failure and grumble about the unfairness of it all and demand that we get checked out. Jesus stands up for us. In the trial of heaven versus Sandy Adams, Jesus stands by my side. Of course, on the other side of the courtroom is Satan. Revelation 12 verse 10 calls him the accuser of the brethren. That's an ominous title. Devil means slanderer. Satan is the prosecutor who wants to condemn us. And understand, Satan has mounds and mounds of incriminating evidence. Quite frankly, we've all made it easy for him. He doesn't even have to lie. He has videotapes of our private sins and wiretaps of hateful words we've said and surveillance of evil thoughts and scores of excoriating eyewitnesses. But just when Satan approaches the bench to call his first witness, our attorney jumps up and objects. Jesus shouts, that evidence is inadmissible. He has already paid its penalty. Because of Jesus' completed work on the cross, our sin is fully forgiven and forever forgotten. Jesus puts our sin under the blood of Jesus and out of the reach of anyone's recall. For John tells us, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the whole world. This word word translated propitiation, it means place of mercy. Where can you go to find God's mercy? Reminds me of the sign that was on the wall of the convent. It read, no parking, violators will be prosecuted to the full extent of the law. Signed, Sisters of Mercy. Sadly, at times, even the church is in a very merciful place. This is why John says that Christ himself is our place of mercy. The Hebrew equivalent of this word propitiation is kippereth, which is in the Old Testament translated mercy seat. You remember the mercy seat was the solid gold lid that sat on top of the Ark of the Covenant, the box that sat in the holiest court of the Jewish temple. It's where the priest would sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice and stave off God's judgment. Over the mercy seat hovered God's glory. Under the mercy seat sat the two tablets of the law. God's glory was the concentration of his love. Those two tablets declared his righteousness. But between the demands of the law and the love of God sat a blood-stained slab. It was there that God's kindness and God's justice were both satisfied. 
That sacrifice proved God's love for man. That sacrifice paid man's penalty for sin. God's love and law shook hands and agreed at the mercy seat. Thus, in the Old Testament, the mercy seat became the only place on earth where you could go to receive forgiveness for sins and to obtain the mercies of God. But now, John declares a new, a radical truth. He blows his readers away. He says that God's mercy seat is no longer a lid. It's the Lord. Jesus himself has become our mercy seat. He is our propitiation, our place of mercy. In Christ Jesus, the law of God and the love of God have locked hands. Jesus is now the one place on earth where all peoples from all places, as John puts it, the whole world can find mercy and help from God. If you've sinned, if you need help this morning, please come to Jesus and receive mercy. Well, Jesus is an advocate and a propitiation for people who fellowship with God. But how do we know that we know him? How do you tell the difference between a believer and someone who's not? You know, both Christians and non-Christians, they can look a lot alike. The day after I gave my life to Jesus, I didn't wake up with three eyes. I didn't grow an appendage, extra appendage overnight. Except for the smile on my face, Sandy the Christian looked a lot like the same as Sandy the heathen. Even though the weight of the world had rolled off my shoulders, if I had gotten on the scales, I probably would have weighed the same as I did the day before. What are the distinguishing features of a Christian? How do you know that you really know the Lord? Well, in verses 3 through 11, John provides us with the Christian's self-test kit. These are very important verses. John knows that Christians aren't tattooed on the back of the hand like concert goers. We aren't issued dog tags to wear the moment we get saved. It's not only difficult to recognize if someone else is a Christian, some people can even deceive themselves. We need a way to test ourselves. It's interesting when a woman wants to know if she's pregnant, pregnant, she too can purchase a self-test kit. There's a certain hormone that's always present in the urine of a pregnant woman. This test checks for that hormone. Now, I don't have much firsthand experience in this, but if you look up how to take the pregnancy test on the internet, you'll find some pretty detailed instructions. I read this this past week. After moistening the testing stick, place it on a clean, level surface. Wait time is typically one to five minutes. Now, check this out. Try not to stare at the stick for the duration of the waiting period. Time will seem to go slower, and you'll become even more anxious. Do something to distract yourself, like making a cup of tea or doing some stretches or exercises. Try not to stare at that strip. That's probably good advice for a woman who's wondering if she's pregnant or not. But when we're talking the Christian self-test, we need to give it our undivided attention. We need to play close scrutiny. For the stakes are high. That stick might indicate physical life, but John tests us for eternal life. And just like 
the pregnancy hormone, there are certain characteristics present in the life of every Christian. Now, whether you carry a big Bible or give a tithe or pray eloquent prayers or quote a lot of Bible verses or teach Sunday school or lift up your hands in worship or cook a delicious casserole for every potluck. No, John says the Christian self-test is twofold. First, verses three through six, do you keep God's commandments? And second, verses seven through 11, do you love your brother? Verse three begins, now by this we know that we know him. First, let me say, it is possible to know that we know God. Other religions are guessing games. In Islam or in Mormonism, you never really know where you stand. You die wondering if you've done enough. But assurance of salvation is the hallmark of Christianity. Verse 3, we can know that we know him. It was Benjamin Franklin, remember, who penned the famous words, nothing is certain but death and taxes. But John would disagree. Fellowship with Jesus is also something we can count on. The word know appears 39 times in 1 John. He is writing so we can know. When the Christian scientist and statesman Michael Faraday was dying, a journalist came to his deathbed. He asked Faraday a question. Would you care to comment on your speculations about the afterlife? Faraday replied, speculations? I know nothing of speculations. I am resting on certainties. I know my Redeemer lives, and because He lives, I will live also. Well, as Christians, we too can be certain that we know God. And the first indicator is if we keep His commandments. Verse 4 tells us, He who says, I know Him, and does not keep His commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. Now understand the idea that John espouses of keeping the Lord's commandments is different from the legalism taught in other religions. Earlier I mentioned Islam and Mormonism. In these religions, as in most, obedience is a duty. It's an obligation. You're climbing a legalistic ladder as high as you can through your own efforts and perseverance and skill. Whereas John talks of keeping his commandments as an outgrowth, as a byproduct of his influence and our gratitude and love. In other words, we don't keep God's commands to earn his favor. Our obedience is a sign that we already possess his favor. Having lived with Jesus for three years, John knew firsthand that Jesus had such a potent persona that it was impossible to know him and not be influenced by him. You know, occasionally we run into charismatic people who impact our lives. But this is nothing compared to the hold that God takes on our lives. If you're not enchanted by his love and intrigued by his ways and desirous of his kindness and longing for his character, if you don't want to follow God and become more like him, John says there's only one explanation. You must have never met him. 
Again, verse 5. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. Our obedience is compelled by his love. If you've tasted of God's love, you'll want to obey him. You'll want to keep his commandments. It's been said we obey God, not because we have to, but because we want to. My obedience to God is the perfection or the fulfillment of his love for me. In Hosea chapter 11, verse 4, God describes his influence on Israel. He says, I drew them with gentle cords, with bands of love, rather than lashing and pressing and making them. God drew them with love. And God's love still has this endearing and attracting effect on people. It's his love that produces in us a desire to follow him, to keep his commandments. He draws us with bands of love still. And the more God's love spreads out into the tentacles of our life, the more I get caught up in wanting to please him. When his love fills me, my heart melts and my utmost desire is to keep his word. As John says in verse 6, he who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. But keeping his commandments is just the first of this twofold test. For verses 7 through 11 reveal part two of the test. Brethren, I write no new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you heard from the beginning. In a sense, this notion of loving our brother was old school. Over 1,500 years before the days of John and the birth of the Christian church, Moses had written to the Hebrews in Leviticus 19, verse 18, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. To the biblically informed mind, love was nothing new. But Jesus put a new spin on love. So much so that now John can pen, again, a new commandment I write to you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. He who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. The way Jesus loved made the commandment to love a whole new venture. Jesus didn't just love his brother or a neighbor. He even loved his enemy. Jesus' love was unconditional. He loved people with no strings attached. He even loved the unlovely. Jesus loved lavishly, but his love never contradicted or betrayed his righteousness and his truth. Human love is clumsy at best. Look at our love, and it resembles a sack race. But Jesus turned love into a beautiful ballet. To love the way that Jesus loved turned what was old school into a whole new commandment. In the light of Jesus, the commandment for us to love one another becomes new and daring and beautiful. Hey, Jesus took love off the books and put it into practice. A dusty old commandment that was written on stone tablets was now personified in Jesus Christ. As one commentator puts it, the law came to life in Jesus. And this new commandment, it comes to life wherever the light of Jesus shines. 
The light and presence and warmth of Jesus brings his love into loveless spaces, even the cold, vacant chambers of our own hearts. John writes, He who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. This word abide, it means to dwell or to stay. You know, often on the street, somebody will ask you, Hey, where do you stay? Rather than where do you live? But I like the slang phrase better. It's really more accurate. Because people today are constantly on the go. Folks don't always stay where they live, do they? At least not for long. Where we abide isn't the address where we get our mail. It's where we let our hair down. It's the influences to which we submit ourselves. Where do you stay? Do you hang out in the dark corners of this world? Or do you expose yourself to the marvelous light of God? And how you treat others is the surest indicator of where you've been staying. If you love your brother, there's a great probability you've been abiding in God's light. But if there is hatred in your heart, I'm sorry, I don't care what address is on your driver's license. You're not living in the light of Jesus Christ. This is the second time now John uses this word abide. Link verse 6 to verse 10. And the person who abides in Jesus, who lives under his influence, is the person who walks as he walks and loves as he loves. John says in verse 10, there's no stumbling over this truth Again, this is how you know that you know God. The light of God shines his rays of love into your heart. I am a son of the South, born and bred in the heart of Dixie. I was raised in the 1960s amidst the racial bigotry and discrimination of segregation. Even the churches, at least the white churches that I were familiar with at the time, were steeped in racism. As a boy growing up, there was no one in my world who didn't support the notion of equal but separate. In fact, from the same Sunday school teachers who taught me biblical orthodoxy, that salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus, that the Bible is inerrant, that the rapture, the church will one day be raptured. From the same teachers who taught orthodox theology, I heard the Bible twisted and distorted to justify segregation and bigotry. I was 10 years old when Dr. King was assassinated at the Lorraine Motel in Memphis. It's sad to say, but the horror of that moment didn't hit me until several years later. For as a child, I grew up with hatred in my heart. Today, people of color or for some of the younger generation, you wonder, how can this hatred fester? Realize I'm ashamed to admit that it festered in me. I would much prefer for you to think that I've always been loving and accepting of people, but that's not true. I was blind to the heart of the God that I professed to actually serve. John explains how this can happen in verse 11. He says, but he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. And this kind of blindness, my friends, is very, very real. It can blanket whole segments of society. 
We even see it raising its ugly head again today. What changed my life forever was the day I truly met the Jesus I previously thought I knew. When Jesus filled my heart with his light, it drove out the darkness of hatred and prejudice. His light shined so brightly, it filled me so fully that there was no longer any room for the hatred I had harbored. Instantly, my attitude changed. I had a love for all people, regardless of their skin tone. I marveled at how I could have been so blind. You know, some Christians, they talk about being instantly delivered. When they came to Jesus, they were instantly delivered from alcohol or from tobacco or from a vile temper or from drugs. I was instantly delivered from bigotry and hatred and prejudice. I praise God for it. I want to read verse 11 again, but here's the sad reality. If there is hatred and darkness in you, if your eyes have been blinded, verse 11 is going to bounce off your heart like a rock skipping across the concrete. I'm going to read verse 11, but before I do, you need to know that I have spent several days this week praying for this moment. Like a lightning bolt piercing a night sky, I'm praying this verse penetrates your heart and opens your eyes. For friend, you need to know where you stand. Here it is. He who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Blindness is the problem Jesus still intends to solve. You remember while on earth, our Lord opened blind eyes. And he wants to cure us of our blindness as well. And part of abiding in Christ is living with our eyes wide open. Hatred and blindness go together. It's only when my eyes are wide open to God's light and when they're open to the needs of others That's when hatred begins to dissipate. Are your eyes open to God and to others? I want to say something this morning to our church, especially to the white members of our church. For some of us brag about how we're colorblind. We don't see color. We're not black or white. We're just people. We're all just children of God. But that's not entirely true. It's not true for black folks. The reality of the situation today in American culture is that black people do get racially profiled. Society makes assumptions all the time based on skin color. And often these conjectures are negative and harmful and unfair. And it's not just white people who profile black people. Black folks can also hold preconceived notions about white people. None of us are totally colorblind. Our sin and past racial issues shape our present reality. A loving church isn't going to say, oh, we're neither white or black. It's going to say, we're both white and black. We respect our diversity. We don't deny it. A church committed to racial reconciliation and unity doesn't just make politically correct statements and symbolic gestures. It goes further. And it seeks to understand each other. We ask Jesus to open our eyes to one another. 
Folks of different races learn to love one another by daring to get to know each other, by being committed to empathizing with each other and trying to understand each other. We need to be color brave, not color blind. Ed Gilbreth is a Christian pastor who happens to be African American. Ed tells the following story. It was my third year in ministry when I got a call from a prominent white Christian leader asking me to go to lunch. As we sat down to eat, suddenly this guy starts crying. He explains that God has blessed him, but he's having a hard time getting to sleep at night. He had just gotten back from a conference where the subject was racial reconciliation. And for other other pastors, he had admitted to telling bigoted jokes and using the N-word. He had come home convicted and he wanted to make things right. He asked me, how can we be friends? Ed writes, I was silent for a moment and then I asked him, do you like football? He seemed puzzled, but he said, yes. I do too, I told him. I used to coach and I have a lot of friends who played. I love the game and I love to cook out. So here's what we do. I need to get to know you, and you need to get to know me. Why don't you come over to my house, bring your wife, and meet my wife. We'll just sit and talk and get to know each other. I'll barbecue some steaks, and we'll start there. Ed continues, the white pastor was taken back. He said, you want me to come to your house? Yes, I said. If you want me to sit here and clear your conscience for all the crap you've done, I can't do that. Friendship is not cheap. It takes time and commitment. I gave him my home phone number and told him to give me a call. And here it is. Drop the mic. Ed writes, I never heard from him again. I hear so much talk today about racial reconciliation. And we'll learn to get along by attending some rally and holding hands together and singing some kind of kumbaya. No. If we're serious about living together, we'll all make a commitment to really get to know each other on a personal basis. This is my prayer for Calvary Chapel Stone Mountain, that we'll be that kind of place. Frederick Douglass was born into slavery. As a child, he was sold to Maryland slaveholders. Over his first 20 years, he was beaten and abused and tortured. He suffered all the indignities of American slavery. As a young boy, he heard of Christ and the gospel. But even then, he had questions. Why am I a slave? Where is God? Where is God? Why is God silent in our suffering? Regardless of the justifications he heard from his white masters, Douglas began to reason. Perhaps it was not color, but crime, and not God, but man that created slavery. Eventually, he put his faith in the gospel of the Bible and embraced Jesus as his Lord. In 1838 and at 20 years old, Douglas left behind his chains and bravely escaped from his slaveholders. He settled in New Bedford, Massachusetts and tried making a living in the shipyards. But Douglas had a voice. Frederick Douglass had a way with words. He spoke out against the slavery he had known, 
especially the hypocrisy of so-called Christians who supported the evils of slavery. Many of his speeches repeated a chastening refrain. He would tell his largely white and Christian audience, between the Christianity of this land and the Christianity of Christ, I recognize the widest possible difference. Wow. The widest possible difference. I want to close this morning with a few questions for us. How much distance is there between the Christianity we practice and the Christianity John writes about, the Christianity of Christ? And are we closing down those differences? Or is our Christianity basically just a religion of convenience? Are we picking out commandments to keep that most complement our current lifestyle? Do we choose to love the people who are easiest for us to love? Or do we love God enough to keep His commands, the commands that are important to Him, and because they're important to Him? And do we love the people God created regardless of our preferences? I want to challenge us all. Does our Christianity rise to the level of the Christianity of Christ? How do we know that we know Him? We can know, but it goes far beyond platitudes and what's convenient. Do we keep His commandments? And do we love our brother?